Things Good Podcast. Hello and welcome to the ATG Podcast. Today I'm joined by Travis Mills. Travis is a retired United States Staff Sergeant, motivational speaker, and founder of the Travis Mills Foundation. Travis, how you doing? I'm living that dream. Good afternoon. How are you today? Doing pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, glad you came on uh, the podcast today. I think you got, you know, amazing story to tell people. Uh, you know, hopefully we can use the All Things Good platform to tell it even better. So uh, let's start at the beginning. You know, what was kind of like what made you first want to, you know, go into the Army? Well, you know, I uh, actually had a girlfriend when I was in high school that convinced me I should move home from playing college football and go to college with her. So I did that. And then when I got home, I met her boyfriend, Colin, by accident, like the other guy that I didn't know about. So then I was like, I'm done. And I joined the Army because of that. And then when I look back in my life, I'm like, how did this all happen? How did I have my injuries? It's basically her fault that it happened to me. But I'm over it completely. But uh, no, so I just, college wasn't my thing, to be honest with you, right? Um, I didn't really enjoy being in school. I didn't like the money that was, you know, racking up for debt. And I thought, let me try something different. And I went and talked to the recruiting station. I found the military to be, you know, enticing. They gave me a $24,000 signing bonus. So I was like, I'll take that. Yeah. And uh, I, I went with the Army because, you know, it just it seemed like the right fit for me. So I went to the 82nd Airborne Division out of Fort Bragg. And I learned how to jump out of airplanes and, kick bad guys in the face and have a good time doing it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of your journey with that, you know, I believe you were serving in uh, Afghanistan, uh, you know, 2012 was kind of year that changed your life forever. Uh, can you kind of tell us about, you know, that day on uh, April 10th and, you know, what, what kind of yeah. happened? Absolutely. So, I mean, I made it Fort Bragg and 2006, I deployed three times with the 82nd Airborne Division. And my third trip over, um, I didn't have to go, but I decided to go. Like my guys were going overseas, my wife and my newborn, who's uh, my daughter, Chloe, she was only four months old. Um, you know, she understood the calling that I had to go with my men. So I got my orders canceled, went overseas. Uh, first day in country was a huge firefight. Um, second day was the same. And the third day, you know, every day was just a big, it was a brawl, all out brawl. Um, and we got a phone call on April 10th of 2012 that we had some IEDs somewhere in the village and things like that. Like, can you come help us out? So we said, yeah, no problem. Uh, we went out like normal. We swept the ground with a minesweeper. So you see people on the beach with minesweepers. We have kind of the same thing in the military that sweeps the ground and it tells you if there's something in the soil. Um, it's called ground penetrating radi uh, uh, radi GPR, radi radiation maybe. But um, it was marked safe. You know, we went over it not once, but twice. Came to a short halt and I took my backpack off. My backpack was full of ammo had about 120 pounds in it. It was ammo, grenades, uh, water, food, you know, the normal stuff. And I sat on the ground and underneath my backpack was a bomb. So when the bomb went off, it took my right arm, right leg off uh, automatically. And they never found those pieces. And I got thrown on the left side of my face. And when I rolled over on the ground, I was kind of on my back looking at myself. And I saw my right side was gone. My left arm was mangled up pretty good. I still had used my thumb, index and middle finger. 
And then my left leg was snapped um, through the bone. I know I say it so nonchalantly, it's pretty awful, right? But <laughs> my, uh, my left ankle bone, if you can imagine, was touching my left thigh. So muscle and tendon holding on some skin, but that was it. And when I hit the ground, I saw everything. My medic, Dan Bateson, ran up to work on me. And I told him, hey, don't worry about it. You're not going to save me. Um, with my experience over in Afghanistan and the things that I'd seen and, and been through, I thought, you know, I've seen guys that unfortunately died for what I thought was a lot less injury. And um, I said, you're not going to save me. Go save my guys. I had two guys yelling out for the medic. They were injured as well. And he ignored my, you know, my, I guess, commands of like, hey, don't worry about it. It'll be over quick. And he started bandaging up my right side. And my platoon sergeant, Sergeant Hambright, started bandaging up my left side. And as it working on me, I'm not sure what to do with myself, but I keep telling myself to stay calm. Don't freak out. Um, because the last memories that I wanted my guys to have of me was not going to be yelling for my mom or crying saying, you know, yeah. I don't want to die and things like that. Like I always exude confidence and love from the front. Um, matter of fact, the movie Saving Private Ryan was in my head, believe it or not. Um, in the movie, the medic gets shot in the stomach. You know, he yeah. ultimately cries out. He doesn't want to die, begs for his mom and he dies. And I thought, no way. So as I'm working on me, I reach up on my microphone on my chest and I radio my LT, hey, six, this is four. I got guys injured, need your medic with mine. So they come over to my position. Um, Doc Voice starts working on uh, the other two guys. And then he comes and works on me. And then they got me on a helicopter. And um, on the helicopter, one of my guys was yelling out in a lot of pain. He had every right, too. He was injured. He had every right to yell in pain. But I had, like, this protective goop in my eye. So I winked at him. I was like, hey, it's going to be fine. And they were still yelling in pain. So, like, I started yelling for the flight medic to take his helmet off. And about the third time, I took my arm out of the strap they had, and I slung it over my head to make the motion to take his helmet off. And he did. And I said, hey, give my guys water and tell them they're going to be okay. Um, I might have said some other choice words in that moment because he wasn't listening to me at first. But, you know, and uh, he gave my guys water. He calmed them down, told me they were going to take care of them. And they got me on a helicopter ride from the battlefield to Kandahar. And when I got to the hospital, they rushed me into surgery and then worked on me for 14 hours, like nine doctors and seven nurses, which is incredible because if they would have loosened up one tourniquet, I would have bled out, right? Like two minutes, I'm done. But instead they just said, you know what? Let's just keep working for these 14 hours. They pumped air in my lungs, two nurses for nine hours. And I was actually given over 400 units of blood, um, which is the most blood ever given to anybody in Afghanistan at the time. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure if I still hold the record. I hope I do. Um, most of us, I hope no one got hurt as bad, but a little part of me, because I want to be a winner. And I still have a shot put record from junior high. Just thought you should know. <laughs> what, what was that, like, initial moment like? Like, you know, when the bomb went off and, you know, did you, like, black out at all? Because I feel like that's, like, a moment where, like, it seems like you remember a lot of it, but I feel yeah. like that's a moment that probably a lot of people would just black out from the pain. Yeah, I have no idea why I didn't. I was awake the whole time. I was joking with the medics. I was calming them down. When I got on the helicopter, I told them, hey, guys, whatever happens, you did your best. Don't you know, hang your heads about it. And then when I got to the hospital, as they were wheeling me through like the hallway to get me to surgery, I kept trying to sit up. I used only my elbow on my left side and I'd sit up and um, the nurse would push me down. About the fifth time she did it, I told her, quit touching me, I'm fine, leave me alone. I just gotta get back to my guys. And she's like, Sergeant Mills, I don't know how you're still awake right now, but you need to go to sleep. So they knocked me out. And the last thing I looked at that nurse and I said, was my little girl, am I ever gonna see her again? You know, cause then at that point it got pretty real to me. And, um, no, they had to medically sedate me. And uh, I remember everything and the pain didn't start hitting me until um, when I was on the hospital bed, like when I was trying to sit up and stuff like that's when it was a little bit more painful. And they, you know, they sedated me and then they worked on me, you know, all that time. And my left leg came off 
pretty easily, I guess you could say. And my left arm was still there. And then um, two days after that, they flew me to Bagram, Afghanistan, and they took me in for a washout surgery and they realized my skin had died. So my left arm was gone. So I had to cut it off. So I became a quadruple amputee. And then two days after that, uh, they woke me up for the very first time on April 14th. And when I came to, the only person in the room was my brother-in-law. And my brother-in-law, Josh, was in the military as well. And he had to be one to kind of tell me everything that happened. You know, the first thing I asked him, my soldiers, how are my soldiers? And he told me about Brandon and Ryan, where they were at and what was going on with them. Then I said, am I paralyzed? And he said, no. And I looked at him and said, Josh, I can't find my fingers or toes. Like, tell me the truth, you know, you, you don't got to lie to me. Am I paralyzed? He said, man, you're not, but you don't got them anymore. And then I said, oh, and then for three hours, I literally ignored everybody. The doctors, the nurses, Josh, they all asked questions. And I just looked the other way because I had my own questions, you know, like, am I a bad person? You know, does God hate me? You know, um, how can I be a husband and a father? And the biggest, the biggest thing I was wondering is, uh, you know, why didn't I just die? It was real like Lieutenant Dan Forrest Gump moment of like, you know, why not, how is this going to be better? And finally, my brother-in-law convinced me like, hey, you got to call your wife and you got to call your parents. So I did. And when I called my wife, I was like, hey, what's up? I'm fine. I'm like, love you. Bye. I didn't want to have the conversation. And then my, uh, my parents, I called them. I talked to them a little bit more and my mom before I hung the phone up said, Hey, happy birthday. Because it was actually my 25th birthday that day. Um, I didn't tell her it was her fault because the Titanic sank the 14th of April, as well as Lincoln was shot the 14th. So, I mean, it was doomed from the start back in 1987. Thanks a lot, mom. (laughs) But, um, you know, the the initial thoughts is just like, there's nothing I'm going to do. I've watched enough war movies. I still watch war movies. I have no, no problem with seeing that kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, it's not my choice, right? Whatever happens, happens. So I can control my attitude and what I do from that moment on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you, you know, you mentioned you're a you know, quadruple amputee and, you know, you're one of five people to really, you know, survive an injury of that yeah. nature. Uh, can you maybe just show the people, you know, your arm? And- yeah. So I, I can explain them. So my right arm is on my mid bicep. It's a very small arm. I don't wear a prosthetic usually unless I'm like kayaking or canoeing or something like that. Um, my left arm's at my, my mid forearm, but I have a hand on it and stuff. And then my legs are both what you call above knee. So I have a kneecap on my left leg and I'm a through knee on my right leg, which is just like two inches higher than my left leg. Um, so I'm from six foot three to, uh, you know, three foot six, you know, I guess in a matter of seconds. And then, um, I went from 250 pounds to like 140 pounds in those seven days initially. So it was I don't know. It was a pretty rough day at the office, you know, case of the Mondays. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I saw my wife for the very first time when I got to Walter Reed on 17th and uh, she had to sign a waiver to like have my leg amputated two inches higher because the sutures had split open and I was bleeding out and it cut to my leg two inches higher. And the next day she came in and I told her she should leave me, you know, take what we have and go the house, cars, any money. And she's like, that's not how this works, you know. Uh, we'll get through this together. And um, she also was really excited about handicap parking, you know, all the perks. And, um, front row seating right there. Yeah, exactly. VIP. I got that little blue tag in my car, VIP status. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, my daughter was six months old, you know, and I thought she would be so afraid of me. And when she came in to see me the very first time, um, she started laughing, giggling and play. And I was like, how's this kid not afraid? And it turns right. out I look like every single toy she'd ever been given, you know, like short arms, short legs, I'm fuzzy chest. I'm a teddy bear, but, uh, you know, for those two, I'm going to get better. And, and, you know, that, that was my real motivation going into my recovery because um, I'm not sure I'd be the same person without them, without my wife, my daughter and, you know, my family. And uh, believe it or not, my father-in-law is one of my best friends, which is funny because when I met his daughter, it was on MySpace. And she saw, MySpace. Oh, yeah, yeah. She saw a picture of me 
and thought I was cute. So I sent a MySpace friend request and my medic was a home like just for R and R thing. And she saw, she was showing pictures off and I was like six foot three, two seventy five. I might've found supplements in Germany to get my drift. Yeah. So I, was like, I was like, what's up? Get it, get it. You can't see my pecs. Maybe you can get it, get it, you know? And we decided the first date we ever going to go on, she was 18 in college and I was 20 in Afghanistan was to go to Cosmo, Mexico. So I flew and picked her up, went to Mexico, back to Michigan, back overseas. I went, came back and got married at the courthouse being everybody's back. Had a big wedding in June. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's worked out. I mean, we're going on 12 or 13. This is our 13th year we're going on now. Um, nice. So anyway, yeah. Um, just, you know, support was a big thing for us. Support and my daughter being there, I, I knew like I had to get better for her. And I was so weak at one point, I actually couldn't roll right or left or sit up by myself. I had lost so much muscle mass. And if you can imagine being a baby at your age, you know, like that's basically what it was. I'm not saying you're young. I'm just saying like I was, yeah, yeah. I was uh, 25. I could talk. I was coherent, but I couldn't feed myself, dress myself, right. room by myself. You know, there's a lot of things I had to relearn and redo. And luckily I was at Walter Reed, which is like the best place possible to relearn stuff. And, you know, started my recovery there, learn how to, have a hand and be able to use it and then how to get legs and how to drive again and, and be independent and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how did your perspective change when you went to Walter Reed, you know, like meeting people there and kind of the recovery process? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's strength in numbers, right? So for me, I'm thinking my life's over. Why did I even live through this? Like there's no good going to come out of this. I'm going to be a burden to everybody. Um, to my wife, you know, my daughter being there, then all of a sudden my, um, door ha- doorway had a guy in it with no arms, no legs. He walked in, it was a big robot. And I was like, geez, he's actually not a big guy. He's a real small guy. But anyway, a robot walks in. Um, he's like, Hey man, welcome to the club. And I was like, I don't want to be in your club. And he's like, too late. You know, you already are. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. And he said, my name's Todd nicely. I'm a retired corporal from the Marine Corps. I'm the second ever quadruple amputee. You're the fourth. I heard about you. And I just flew in from Missouri, you know, by myself to tell you, you're going to be okay. And that was real eye-opening, right? Like I'm not the only one going through this. And uh, I made it a point after he came and visited me once I got healthy enough, you know, five, six weeks out of my injury, I went to everybody's room and was the first one to say hi. Let them know, hey, you're not a bad person. You're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And then for 19 months that I was at Walter Reed, I did that to everybody. And I would take other guys with me. It was like uh, a welcoming community, uh, welcoming community there. And I became known as what they called the uh, mayor of building 62 where everybody lives at. And I was always helping with the problems. And it's funny how life's peaks and valleys in high school. I was kind of Mr. Everything with sports. And then I went to the army and I was a nobody and then I built myself up and then I got injured and I had to rebuild who I was. And then I was somebody at Walter Reed, you know, and, and then, um, when I got out, it was kind of a real hard thing too. When I got out of the hospital, I was like, who am I now? I'm not, you know, combat veteran, like combat leader, Travis Mills, uh, staff sergeant second. And I'm not the guy at Walter Reed encouraging people, you know, like, who am I going to be? And I don't know. I was just, you know, riding that wave of Valley to, uh, or peak to Valley. And now I'm pretty, pretty successful to be, I'm uh, pretty fortunate to be successful in the business world that I, I currently find myself in. Mm-hmm. How, how did your like emotion change over that time? Like, you know, you were talking originally about, you know, you didn't want to talk to any of the doctors, maybe, if you were pissed a little bit about, you know, at the world kind of, how did your emotion change over time? And then when did you get to a point where you realized that you were, you know, you were going to be good and kind of embark on this, you know, next journey? Yeah. So I, um, I'm stubborn. I'm stubborn as they come. Uh, basically I, 
didn't want to accept that, you know, this happened. But once I did accept it, um, I was just like, well, it's time to get better. There's nothing I can do to change it. Um, and I learned a couple of life lessons early on and I live by today. And the first thing I learned was, you know, you can't always control your situation, but you can always control your attitude. So um, my situation of having no arms and legs doesn't change. Right. Like that's just what it is. But my attitude, uh, I always want to be positive. And if not for me, for my for my children, you know, for my wife, and my kids. And um, I just kind of had to accept what happened. And then I realized don't dwell in the past, just reminisce it. I used to sit there and hope, you know, that I can go back in time and wish and try to figure out how I can close my eyes and make this not the reality. But every time I open my eyes, it was just what it is. So um, I kind of realized just reminisce the past, but don't dwell on it and then look to the future. So it didn't take me long to like snap out of like, okay, this is life. This is what's going to happen. But um, there was like six months I couldn't look in the mirror, but I didn't really tell anybody about that part of my life. Like I was happy around everybody. Um, I didn't go to counseling. I didn't do mental health. Right. I know that. Um, but going back in time, I wouldn't change what I did. Like mental health came to talk to me and I was sleeping the first time. The next time they came back, uh, my wife told me they were there and I pretend like I was sleeping. So I told my wife, tell them, don't, don't come back. I'm not talking to anybody. And then the third time I was eating a bowl of cereal and they walked in the door and I had like a makeshift arm on with like duct tape or Velcro or something. And I was scooping up, you know, cereal from my, my bed at the hospital. I looked over and I saw it was them. I might've swore with the S word. So you don't swear on the podcast, but then I, I fell back in my bed. Oh, let it fly. I don't care. <laughs> I got there, but I was just the door. I said, oh shit. And I fell back in my bed because I got sleeping. And they came over and was like, what are you, what are you doing? And, I gave, and then I gave my name, rank and my social. And they're like, well, what are you doing? And I gave it to them again. They said, I don't understand what you're doing right now. And I said, so I tell the enemy if you get captured. So like take and leave or just get out. I don't care, but we're not talking. Like don't ever come back. And you know, in my mind, like they'll take my guns. They'll make sure I can't serve again. Like they'll put it on record. I had this and that and the other, and I'm not talking to anybody. That's probably the wrong message though. Right. But luckily I had a strong network at Walter Reed of service members that went through the same injuries and their families. So my wife, and I have really just lifelong friends that we've made. Um, another quadruple amputee named Taylor Morris, another guy that's a uh, single leg amputee named Drew Moley, and then three double leg amputees, uh, Bo, Andrew, and Josh. And they all were, you know, they're all married, they have kids, and we all hung out together. So that, that was my therapy. That was my group of people. And it really is something special when you realize that you're not alone. Like this isn't something that you have to go through by yourself. But that's why we started the foundation. I know we haven't gotten there yet, but because at Walter Reed, you have that group and that support. You go live, you know, in your hometown or wherever you want to live at, you don't have that, that same group of support. So that's why the foundation was so important to to have to bring people back together. And um, you know, I'm I'm really happy how it's going. So I got I went ahead of you there. I'm sorry. No, you're you're good. Uh, you know, I think the foundation's done some great stuff for veterans. Uh, can you maybe just tell people a little bit more about what you guys are doing? Yeah. So the Travis Mills Foundation, my wife and I at Walter Reed were having such a wonderful um, experience learning to do things and, and be active that we thought we should, you know, give back as well. And we did care packages the first time that we like did anything for anybody. And I thought just send some care packages overseas to the guys that I know that are deployed and they're in their guys that are with them. You know, so if you went overseas and I knew you from my previous deployment, I'd be like, hey, check it out. I'm sending you a care package. Give me all your guys names. I'm going to send care packages out. And it was wasn't your typical stuff. A lot of people get care packages, you know, from organizations and it's like foot powder and socks and razor blades and stuff like that. Where I'm like, no, I'm going to send orbit gum because it's the best gum that has the best flavor for the longest time for patrols. I'm sending peanut butter M&Ms because they're phenomenal. 
I'm sending, you know, black pepper beef jerky. And I'll tell you something, I have an addiction to gummy bears. So I was sending huge bags of gummy bears and people were loving it. But, uh, but we did that. And then I got the opportunity to go learn how to snowboard and downhill mountain bike and kayak and raft and, you know, all these other activities, mono ski. And when I got to go on these trips, I got to take what's considered a non-medical assistant. My wife's considered a non-medical assistant because I had to have help getting dressed, put my legs on and things like that. And the funding's for the service member, which it should be. I'm not bad mouthing anything. Um, as many service members that go through injuries that can get out there and try these things is what it should be. But guys that are injured like me had to take a non-medical assistant. And I realized I was experiencing these highs and the feeling of independence and still being able to be active with my family, like knowing that's going to be possible for me with my wife. And I thought, well, if it's not for my family to get better, what's it all for? And I thought, let's start something up in Maine where my wife's originally from. We're going to move up there anyway. And we started um, bringing families out. And the first year we brought five families out to Maine and had like a test pilot run. And we showed them how to do things adaptively. And it went so well, we did it again the next year. And after that, we found a facility that was in pretty bad disrepair. Uh, Elizabeth Arden built it in 1929. And, you know, it was just, it was pretty run down. Um, Tyler can tell you, he, uh, he's been here since the beginning. And we went ahead and did two years of construction and over two and a half million dollars initially to get the place up and running. But in 2017, we opened up a barrier-free resort for service-connected injured veterans, whether that's combat or something that happened when you're you know, training while in the service. And it um, falls around uh, physically injured veterans, so paralyzation, amputation, spinal cord injuries, and their families. And we brought up uh, 89 families the first year, um, and that was in 17. In 18, we brought up 135. And then in 19, we brought up over 200. And this year, if everything would have been on pace, um, was what it was supposed to was be over 300 families. And this is no cost to the families um, that come up. We... Um, have a very dedicated but skeleton staff. So we stretch every donation to the best of its ability. And we bring them up and let them know, don't live life on the sidelines. Always be active in your community and your family and never be afraid to try something. So it's pretty cool because we have um, like kids that get to go kayaking with their parents for the first time. Uh, other families that see that they're not alone. They have other, you know, they're like children are like, oh my gosh, your dad's missing his life too, like my dad. Or, you know, stuff like that. And it's, it's just been incredible. Um, the outpour of support that we get and how the foundation's grown from Kelsey and I throwing $5,000 at it personally to being, you know, a multi-million dollar um, foundation that's thriving and doing such wonderful things because people care so much. Just uh, it's truly just amazing. And, you know, as president of the foundation, Kelsey and I both on the board, we don't take a dime. It's not about us getting paid for this. It's about just giving back and doing what we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, like family was kind of a huge part for you starting the foundation, you know, you felt like you had that, you know, that core family, friends to kind of help you through your struggle. Uh, you know, with the foundation, what is kind of the, you know, the feedback you hear from from veterans in terms of what you guys are able to do for them? You know, like you said, it might, must just be such a rewarding feeling for you, but also them, you know, being able to, you know, see other people going through same experiences and also, you know, partake in activities that they might have not thought they could do. Well, absolutely. And it's really cool. We have um, journals in each room and we encourage them to write in the journal. Obviously, don't let the kids doodle in there, but to write in the journal, we leave them in there for people to read. And, um, you know, we we had my program director sitting, doing some work in the living room 
while all the wives were hanging out and one of the wives, and it's not just wives that, that come, I mean, that are not service members. I mean, it's anybody. We have females that are injured and things like that as well. But one wife said to the other group was like, this is the first time that I've seen, you know, well, just for the story's sake, we call him John, you know, but her service member husband, this is the first time I've seen John um, be himself, you know, since we, like how he acted before his deployment. So like after the deployment injured and things like that, like this is how, you know, he's never been him regular, his real regular self since before um, the deployment. And this is the first time that she's seen that side of him. Or we have um, children that cry and they say they, they don't want to leave and they can't wait to come back. He's better than Disney World, you know, like that's a real compliment. And, um, you know, spouses that get the chance to say, I've never been able to re truly relax because nothing's set up for us to go and have a good time and, and be okay. Like getting around and setting up the shower, setting up the bathroom or, making sure everything's taken care of because everything is barrier free. And uh, so if you have a walker, um, like canes, crutches, um, prosthetics, a wheelchair, you can get anywhere in the facility without having any issues. So, I mean, it's pretty cool. I've, I've tried to think of every single detail that I can, like, you know, how to shut the showers up perfectly for anybody with um, neck down paralyzation, you know, to missing one leg below the knee or something. And it's just uh, we're non-clinical, though. Like people wonder if we have like counselors or like things like that. We don't make anybody take classes or courses. We don't tell them they have to talk about their feelings or anything like that. But it's the neatest thing when they sit around the bonfire at night, you know, and the families are sleeping um, or the kids are sleeping because they worn out from a fun day of activities. And they're able to just, you know, relax and unwind, tell stories that they probably haven't brought up in years. And we've had people uh, make lifelong friends that now still are on the phone, still talking. And the cool thing is uh, that was the initial thought, right? Like a summer place, like a summer camp. Yeah. And now we operate um, in spring, fall, winter, summer, all of them, as well as we have the umbrella projects of the PATH program, which is for post-traumatic stress. And we became a partner with Boulder Crest Foundation to host like the 18 month retreat that they put on mm -hmm. um, the first week of the 18, not 18 month retreat, 18 month course. And the first week is actually um, at our foundation and getting people on the path to that. And then also we have a, we call it recalibrate, which means, or which our program is, um, if you come in, you have the best week of your whole year at the Travis Mills Foundation, then you got 51 more weeks we want to make sure we're engaging you, helping you, supporting you. And say you want to take a culinary class, we'll help you get to the culinary class, but you have to do something to prove you want it. Like, and that's usually um, community service and different goals that we set for them to meet. If they meet that goal, then yes, we'll help you because I'm a big fan and big believer in if you're not willing to help yourself, then I, I probably have nothing for you. Like I can't motivate somebody to somebody to do something they don't want to do. Um, right. And if you're willing to work for it, like by all means, we'll do everything we can. Um, in our power and a lot of times outside of our power to uh, to help you get where you need to go. Yeah. In, in terms of like mental health and PTSD, what's like the most, you know, common thing that you see with, you know, veterans from the retreat or just maybe your own experiences in general and like how, you know, cause mental health has become such a, you know, big problem in today's society with people trying to deal with it and anxiety. What's kind of your recommendations on how, you know, people can deal with PTSD and, uh, you know, how, how to get through it. Um, I mean, the biggest thing for um, PTSD is that I see is, you know, people sometimes kind of lose their way and they go home after being in the military and they get told, you know, 
they go from being told what to wear, what to eat, what to say, where to be, to right. have nothing to do. And they, they don't know how to like pick themselves back up. So the reason I believe in the Warrior Path program so much, um, which is who we partner with, is because they say, you know what, you're built up to be a service member, but you were not broken down to be a civilian. And this is 18 month course that you sign up for that you are saying, hey, look, I need help. I want to get better. It's a free course for anybody that wants to sign up um, as long as they have the criteria, you know, veteran and PTSD and everything. And the first week is at our facility, but it's continued for 18 months. Um, and it's a whole, you know, uh, I guess, breakdown to be a civilian, understanding what triggers are, understanding, you know, what makes you angry or tick or what will help you. And it's called post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress, which I think is great. But um, as far as me, like I don't have any nightmares. Like I've, you know, just to speak candidly, I've had to shoot people, had to blow people up. I've had to watch my buddies, you know, take rounds or, you know, die and things like that. And um, for some reason, unfortunate, it doesn't really affect me. But if anybody's out there is struggling, you know, they need to go to the to the Warrior Path program that's on our website, the Travis Mills Foundation uh, website, you know, travismillsfoundation.org, because it's free. It's the help that you need. And after the 18 month course is done, then we're going to have like two or three weeks a year or four weeks a year that we're going to bring families that have, you know, finished the course. Now, if you reach out and you say, Hey, I want to come to the retreat weeks with my family because I have PTSD. Well, we, we don't do that. Um, but we tell them, Hey, you know what, this is a course that you can take and we'll find out right then and there if they want to take the course or don't want to take the course. And if they don't want to take the course, then they don't really have a, um, they don't have a desire to get better, unfortunately, or to like address their issues. So it kind of like weeds out who I think is serious and really wants help and who, you know, uh, quite frankly, I guess maybe we don't want to say it out loud, but I sh I'm going to anyway, like just want a free vacation and yeah. that kind of, you know, and it kind of sucks, but at the same time, like, I'm, like I said, I'm willing to help whoever I can that's willing to help themselves as well. You know? Uh, yeah. I mentioned, you know, you're also a motivational speaker and you kind of, you know, talk with people, uh, I know Stockford is actually saying that you were recently talking with some NFL teams, but uh, what are some uh, like maybe your favorite stories or uh, jokes to tell to the audience? Oh, you know, I think it really sets a tone because when you see me in person, I know, I know we're on like a podcast and everything. So when you see me in person, though, like everybody's always worried about like, oh, I don't want to say something to offend him. I want to like, hurt his feelings or like, what do I say? Like, do I shake his hand or not shake his hand? Like, ugh. And I start off with jokes right away because humor like is the best thing to like get past my injury. So I tell the crowd, the first thing I tell them is like, man, I'm so nervous to be here now that I'm in front of you. I just hope I don't bomb this, you know, because last time. And then I, uh, I, you know, I tell them the two things about me right up front, you know, is number one, I'm awesome. Number two, I'm humble in that order. And then I tell like, you know, I don't wash my hands or use the bathroom. It's my big secret. I, I share it with everybody. I wash my hand, I spin it, you know, and I just, I start with that because I think it sets a tone so people can look past my injuries, you know, and the reason that we have a recalibrate program or on my website, you'll find out I say I'm a recalibrated warrior is because I don't want to be seen as the wounded guy, right? Like I used to be wounded. I had, um, injuries and you can take it and talk to him. Um, yeah, these phone calls. Sorry. I got my phone shot. getting his uh, shot of fame. Yeah, I know. But, uh, <laughs> So I don't ever want to be seen as like the, the wounded guy or things like that. So like I say, recalibrate because I had to recalibrate myself, I had to find my new normal. And, you know, I just kind of live my life to the fullest. So like, I don't see myself as handicapped as maybe everybody else that sees me um, would think I am. And once I get my legs on, I have like three minutes of my day that, you know, I don't 
necessarily enjoy. I have to have help with my legs on and put my arm on like the right way. I put my arm on and roll around my wheelchair and stuff, but like get my legs, my arm on. Uh, it takes about three minutes for someone to help me out quick, using my father in law and my wife or my dad or something like that. And, um, but once I'm up and going, like, do what I want, you know, like before I got on this call, my son and I were driving around my backyard and uh, we have, it's called a track chair, but we were going checking the wood line, checking to see if there's any deer. There wasn't, but, um, and before that I, I had to run to O'Connor's, which is, uh, I took my wife's car in for uh, service today. So, I mean, like yeah. I live a pretty normal life considering I have no arms and legs. Mm-hmm. No, I, mean, I, I have like, 20 arms and you know, like 15 legs or 16 legs, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> No, I think it's, you know, it's amazing your your story and kind of just, you know, showing people that, you know, no matter how low you go, you can always get back up. So I, I think it's pretty inspiring. Uh, you know, a couple of questions I like to ask each guest before we end the podcast. Uh, first one is, you know, what would be your advice to someone trying to overcome failure and how to push through it? Well, I mean, I, I think the best thing I, I can tell people is um, you can always go up no matter what happens. There's, there's always tomorrow for the most part, you know, there's always tomorrow and don't ever let what happened today get you down because you can't change the past. You can't go back in time. And for me, I don't let the whole norms and thing get me down because I live in a nation that takes care of me, right? My prosthetics are taken care of my healthcare and I'm able to learn how to be independent. Uh, believe it or not, I actually drive with my prosthetic right leg. Like I have a little Bluetooth remote that locks it. So it's 25 degree angle locked. So if you see my elbow, like this is say that's the motion of my foot, my hands, my foot now in this scenario, I got boop, hit the brake or hit the lock. And then all of a sudden my legs locked like this. And I just drive back and forth like everybody else. But um, if anybody's going through a hard time, I mean, you got to count your blessings, right? For me, life's all about perspective. Um, when, you, when you look at perspective in my case, like I have, Friends didn't make it back home, right? My buddy Francis, uh, Gene Phillips, the fourth, went by Frankie. Uh, he was in a truck that got blown up. Everybody in the truck died. His wife, Christine, his daughter, Sophia, right? Left him behind. And not meaning to, of course, but his wife would give anything to have in my situation. His daughter would give anything to, to know where dad, her dad is, um, what happened, why he had to go. And his mom, who I talked to as well, would give anything to have one more conversation. And they won't get that. And that's not to make anybody sad or upset, but it truly puts in, you know, perspective for me, like, Hey, look, this might, you know, be kind of a sucky situation, but I'm here watching my daughter grow, taking her gymnastics tonight, right. Soccer yesterday. I'm here with my son. Who's three now. Um, he's a wild man. I mean, named after my medics, Daniel and Alexander, his name's Dax because they made it possible for me to still be here and have kids. And that answers a lot of people's questions. <laughs> no, I think you've, you know, made the the most out of your situation for sure. So it, it, it's just, uh, you know, it's awesome to see and something people can learn from as well. Uh, you know, going off of that, I like to ask people as well, uh, in your own words, what's the definition of success? Oh, I mean, I think everybody has to define it um, differently. You know, for, for me, I'm kind of doing, doing what I want. So when I think of success, like the foundation is very successful, um, monetarily bringing money, but at the same time, I know that there are, you know, between 12 and 16 staff members at any given time, depending on summer or if it's winter, um, that get the chance to, um, you know, believe in the mission, be a part of the team like Tyler, and also have the ability to help all these families out. And when I, when I define success, I'm not sure what it is. my mother-in-law gets mad at me because she's always asking me, when's it going to be enough? Um, Cause I own four businesses actually on top of the foundation. 
Um, and I have a fifth one I'm starting pretty soon. It's going to be a whiskey tavern. You got to come. It's going to be phenomenal. Oh, nice. I love good whiskey. So, <laughs> well, I, I bought a, uh, a Marina. This is the guy that owned the Marina. It's like, Hey, you should buy this. And I'm like, why would I buy this? And he said, well, look at the P and L's. No idea what that meant. But I drank whiskey with my buddy and we decided to buy it because his wife and my wife both said, don't you guys buy it. So <laughs> I bought a Marina on a lodge and, um, it's been going pretty well for me, but, but you know, when she says, when's it ever enough? I, I tell her it's never enough because life's one big chess game and I love chess. It's all strategy. So I think I've had success in my life and I continue to have success, but I, I don't think I'm ever going to be, be done, you know, trying to succeed and try to do more. So I'm not good at this answer at all. As I realized, I just rambled through it saying, uh, always hungry, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you gotta stay hungry. And I think people would just accept if I want to sit on the couch and play video games with an adaptive controller, but that's not who I am, what I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep pushing forward. No offense if that's all you want to do, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> Get some Fortnite in there. <laughs> do you play Xbox with him all, uh, online? I do. Online? I do. He's a lot better than me, but I, I give it a go. <laughs> You're a champion. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> you know, if you ever have a bad day, just snap your fingers and look at your toes. Yeah. Okay. That's right. uh, well, awesome, man. I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Uh, you know, loved hearing your story. So, uh, you know, maybe just mention, uh, you know, website and where people can, you know, find you or, you know, donate to Travis Mills Foundation. Absolutely. So travismillsfoundation.org. That's how you can find the foundation. Travismills.org. That's me. You can find out more about me there and find all the links to everything. Um, follow me on social media, SSG Travis Mills for Facebook and Instagram. And question for you, because you're going to know this because you're a lot more in the know. Do I want to start getting a TikTok? Do I need to start TikTok? I've been told oh, by boy, I don't know. I stay away from that. But yeah, everybody's telling me I need to start a TikTok because that's like the new the new hotness. Yeah, you know? plug our social channels. <laughs> that's what I did, didn't I? No, you said SSG channels. You, you told me to do that. Travis Mills Foundation channels. Oh, at Travis We'll, we'll tag you. We'll tag you and make yeah. it all worth it. <laughs> yeah. I figured. Why? You told me that I'm supposed to say both today. Yeah, I know. I just <laughs> you didn't say ours. Oh, Travis Mills Foundation, the right. Facebook page, and then the Instagram. We're trying to build that one up now because we started it. Oh, it's more than mine for some reason. We uh, got you. We got you. That's what the Taliban said. <laughs> <laughs> we got you. We got you. I know. It's crazy. Anyway, right. I Just to recap, everyone, this has been uh, an ATG podcast with Travis Mills. Big bunch of winners. <laughs> <laughs>